If you were here with us last January, I preached a vision sermon. And during that sermon, I was sharing some of my hopes and prayers and aspirations for 2016. Well, here we are at the near midpoint of the year. And I want to remind you of a couple of the things that I talked about back in January. I talked about asking the Lord and being a part of the Lord's work here in such a way that we might experience unprecedented waves of God's grace. Specifically, there were three waves that I'm asking the Lord for, that I invited you to be a part of asking the Lord for, and to be a part of as a church family moving toward. The wave of unity was the first wave. The next wave was the wave of generosity. And the third wave was the wave of disciple-making. Now, I began with the wave of unity because every other wave of God's grace flows best out of the wave of unity. When we are together, unified around the person of Jesus Christ, God's grace flows from us in amazing ways. And so we talked about this wave of unity. And at the halfway point of the year, I just want to maybe take stock in where we're at. Think about what has happened this year. Think about your role in being a part of God answering this prayer for an unprecedented wave of unity. Some of the things that I talked about when I talked about unity was the fact that we need to be a people who come together concerned about the needs of others, not just our own needs. Then we need to be a people who come together and say, I'm not the most important person in the room. There's actually somebody here that's a lot more important than all of us. His name is Jesus Christ. And we find our value and significance when we put our worship on him, not ourselves. That he can actually order all our priorities so that we really focus on the things that are real priorities. We, we're asking God for a wave, an unprecedented wave of unity. One of the things that I said to you back in January is that your church staff would be working hard to be a unified team. I told you that our deacon leadership would be working hard to be a unified body of servant leaders. And together the deacons and the pastors would, would form a unified group of leadership for the health of our church. And I'm really happy to say that we're doing that. You've got a staff team that is working well together. In fact, I want to tell you, I love working with our staff team. I am genuinely grateful for the opportunity to work on this team. I love working with our deacons. And I have come to know some of these guys as friends and fellow partners in ministry. And I love our deacon leadership. I, Lindley and I love being a part of this church. It has been a great experience for us, and I want you to know the leadership of this church is working very hard to be unified in how we go about doing what we're doing. You know, one of the other things we talked about was making sure that the streams of communication were improving so that you get plenty of information about what's happening here, because it's kind of hard to be on the same page if you don't know what that page is. And so we've been working hard at improving some of our streams of communication. I don't know if you're on Facebook or Twitter or those things like that. If you're not, get on them. Follow the First Baptist Church stuff. There's great information there. The way that things coming together, it's good information on what's happening here in the life of a church. 
We've improved the worship guide. We got the weekly in a format that is so easy to follow. There are a lot of streams of communication that we're improving, and we can continue to improve those. We want you to know what you should know as a part of this church so you can be headed in the same direction with your leadership. And we're going to keep working on that. I told you about our vision and talked about that. And we've been seeking to clarify and communicate our vision as a church family. And it's simply to love God, love people, and help others do the same. That's the clarity of our vision. That's what we want to be about. Helping others love God and love people as we love God and love people. I encouraged us to be a people who says, you know what, church is really not about me. It's not really about what I want and what I like and what I need and what I prefer. You know what, this is really an opportunity for us to worship Jesus Christ and to be transformed through worshiping Him and aligning our lives with Him so that we consider others even more important than ourselves. And that we're a part of helping people meet Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this last month, in my mind, was a little bit of a test about where we really were as a church family in regard to unity. This wave of unity we're asking the Lord for. And I'm really excited to tell you that as far as I can tell, we have experienced some evidence in the last month as God's brought us together around a very critical decision in regard to our future as a church around the worship pastor where we're saying we're trusting the Lord. We don't know what the Lord's going to do. We don't know all of how this is going to unfold. We don't know the details of his plan. Maybe at the level we'd all want to know him. But what we do know is this is God's plan as we understand it and we are ready to walk forward following him. And I love that we've walked through this experience in the last month and come to a place where we're together. I'm excited about that. And I'm praying that God would continue to unfold an unprecedented wave of unity in this place. Unprecedented. And I'm grateful that the story this morning in Judges is an encouragement towards that end. Now the story in Judges is the story that picks up with our fifth judge, Judges chapter 12. Our fifth major judge, Judge Judge Jephthah. And this is the story that brings his whole story to conclusion. So we started in Judges chapter 10. And they're going to wrap up in Judges chapter 12 and see the end of this story. The Ammonites had come against Israel. And God used Jephthah to deliver the Ammonites into his hand. So that Israel would be free and delivered from her enemy. And now we get to see the reaction of God's people to God's gracious deliverance. So let's look at Judges chapter 12, and let's start reading in verse 1. Judges 12, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down. Does this sound like a junior high squabble? We're going to burn your house down. I mean, think about this. Ephraim is a family group inside the nation of Israel. Jephthah comes from a family group inside the nation of Israel. You've got two families in the same nation of God's people 
that are fighting against each other. And Ephraim says to Jephthah, why didn't you bring us into the fight? Because you left us out and this didn't. Now think about that. Ephraim has experienced the deliverance of God through Jephthah. And their response is, we don't like it. We don't like that you left us out, so we're going to burn your house down. This is not the story that we should be reading, right? How sad that that's the response to deliverance. Look what happens. Verse 2. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me to fight against me? And this is the second time we've heard Jephthah ask that question. He asked that question to the king of Ammon, and the king of Ammon came against his, why are you coming up to fight against me? And then he began to attempt negotiations toward a peaceful resolution with the king of Ammon. The second time when Jephthah says, why are you coming up to fight against me? We're not going to see any attempt at negotiation. We're not going to see any grace extended whatsoever. When they come against Jephthah and Jephthah asks that question, the immediate response is to go right to battle. Look at what happens. Verse 4, then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. So here's what he says. He says, because you made fun of us, we're fighting against you. So one group says, you left us out, we want to burn your house down. The other group says, you made fun of us, we're going to burn your house down. And they get in this big old fight. And that's what's unfolding. This is not what should be happening as a result of God's gracious deliverance of his people. Look at verse 5. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, say now Shibboleth. But he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. So they had this battle and apparently portions of the army of Ephraim were stuck in the territory of the battle because the Gileadites had won security of the passageway across the Jordan. They then closed off all ways back home. When the Ephraimites were trying to get back home in the midst of the, the results of that battle, they met these places, these checkpoints, and they were given a test and apparently their dialect prevented them from saying a particular word in a particular way that gave away their identity. As a result of giving away their identity, they were killed. And when you think about the whole battle that unfolded there, 42,000 Ephraimites, Israelites, were killed by Israelites. 
God graciously delivered his people. And they could not extend grace as they had received grace. And the end of this story is so tragic that it ought to make us respond emotionally to this story by saying, I don't want to be a part of a story like that. This was not what Israel was supposed to be a part of, the kind of story they were supposed to be a part of. Israel was supposed to be a unified nation under the worship of the one true God who had rescued them out of Egypt, who had given them promises to be a people set apart from all other peoples through which their worship of God would enable the rest of the world to see the glory of God. This was not supposed to be the story of Israel. And yet when we come to the times of the judges, we're seeing brokenness and fracture to the point where things are spinning out of control, a downward spiral of rebellion against God. This was not supposed to be the story, and yet it continues to get worse and worse through the story of the judges, and we begin to believe and think, hey, these judges that are coming and delivering the people are not enough because things are not getting better. God's people are being delivered and yet things are getting worse. And the book here, this story of Judges is leading us to begin to say as readers of this story, the people need something better than one of these judges because the kind of deliverance that they need to change the fabric of who they are is not happening through guys like Jephthah. They need more. And by the end of this story, we will be crying out, no, what they need is not just another judge what they need is a king they need a king to lead them forward they need a king to bring them together as one people they need a king to remind them of who God is and lead them forward victoriously and they're going to get their king and that king's going to bring them together in one kingdom and they're going to have another king after that and another king after that. They're going to experience fracture after fracture under king after king. And by the time we get to the Old Testament, we're going to be saying, we need something more than a king. Israel needs a better king. All of these kings have not done what Israel needs. They need something more. And we get to the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, we're going to cry out as a result of that unfolding story, no what they need is a savior. They need a perfect judge. They need a righteous king. And they need a sinless priest who can offer himself for their sins. Because until they are forgiven of their sins through the blood of a savior, the son of God, they will not be free. We're going to be crying out for Savior. When you look at these stories from our vantage point, we are so fortunate. We are so blessed by the Lord to be able to see this unfolding story from our point in history. To be able to say, we have seen just such a king, just such a judge, and just such a high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. And he gave his life for us. You know, the prophet Isaiah, in the timeline of the kings, talks about the coming of the Messiah. 
I want you to listen to this description in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse is the dad of David who becomes king. Prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, is saying somebody's going to come out of David's line. And he's going to bear the fruit that we all are longing for. That no judge, no prophet, no priest, and no king has delivered to this point. Continues in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not be hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea a Messiah is coming who will bring my people and all of creation together in unity that reflects the glory of my name Jesus Christ The message of his death and resurrection is the message. When we believe, bring us together in unprecedented unity. When we believe in the gospel, do you know what that means for us right here? Because here's the thing. God's plan for Israel to be unified around him is God's plan for our church. To be unified around the person of Christ in his work on the cross. And when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, every single one of us is brought into the same family. We're all part of the same family. We're not anymore a grouping together of a bunch of individual families. No, we are grafted into one family, the most significant family in all of creation, the family of God. When the Bible talks about the family of God, the Bible talks about it like a body where Jesus Christ is the head. He's leading all of us. And so we're all following him in the same direction. And each one of us as a part of his body is playing a specific role in functioning according to the will of Jesus Christ. We are working together because we're part of the same family. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are made the same in status. Do you know that every one of us in this place comes from a different background, a different orientation, a different pedigree, a different type of family, a different 
degree of wealth and economic experience. I mean, we all have tons of differences in our background. And from the world's perspective, we are not all of the same status. But praise God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. He levels the playing field and we are all the same status. We are all sinners saved by grace. There's not one person in here better than the other. You may have had a wonderful background with incredible privilege. You are not better than the next guy who had no background and no privilege. When we come to Jesus Christ, he levels the playing field and we all need the same grace for salvation. And there is no deliverance based on the merit of any person save Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has lived a life worthy of eternal life. And he gave his life for us who are not worthy of eternal life so that we might receive it as a gift. We all have the same status. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are all given the same mission. Every one of us, by being a part of the family of God with the same status of being saved by the grace of God, have the same mission from God to make disciples, to love him, to love people, and help others do the same. That is our mission, to make disciples. This is the mission that prioritizes everything else as secondary under that great calling. There is nothing more significant that we are after than the making of disciples for the glory of God. God brings us together to be one. That's his purpose. Jesus Christ prayed for us to be unified in John chapter 17. And you know when he prayed that prayer, he revealed God's plan for us. This is God's plan for us. And right before Jesus prayed for our unity, he prayed that we'd be sanctified by the truth. The preface for our unity was to be transformed by the truth so that being transformed by the truth would put us all on the same page. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that so radically changes us that we, a diverse people, can be one. One family, one status, one mission. One. That's his plan for us. Back in 1866, 13 people who were unified gathered together and made a decision to plant a church in the county seat of Williamson County. And 150 years ago, because 13 people were unified, we sit in this building today. I mean, 150 years ago when that, those 13 people got together, could they have imagined this? Could they have imagined the thousands of people over 150 years that have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose lives have been transformed, who are now following Christ and making Christ known all over the earth? who have died and gone on to be with Jesus because of the ministry of this place in this, this town? I mean, can you imagine? Could they have even seen that? I mean, the benefits of unity are unbelievable. I want to be as part of a story like that, of a group of people that have said, I want to be a part of this family with the status of being saved by the grace of God, bent on one mission because of Jesus Christ, that he would do something with our unity for his glory that will change the face of the earth. 
So that in 150 years from now, somebody else will be meeting in this place and and maybe a hundred other places because of what God did in this place. And they say, can you believe what God did? Because 150 years ago, that group of people said, we want to be unified for the cause of Christ. And God poured out unprecedented grace for his kingdom. That's the story I want to be a part of. I would like to tell you that First Baptist's story has always been one of unity. But, but it hasn't been, and it's not unlike a lot of churches. I, in fact, I was reading a book recently on church leadership and change in the church, and one section of the book talks about some of the things that churches have fought over. And it was really kind of humorous. It would be really, really funny if it wasn't so sad. Uh, one of the things that one of the churches was fighting over, whether or not they would put dividers between the stalls in the women's restroom. Now, now, I'm sorry, but why would you even need to talk about that? Isn't that just like an automatic? I mean, every woman here is going, what kind of moron group of men was on that committee? <laughs> I mean, that is hilarious. There's another church that was arguing over what picture of Jesus they would hang in the foyer. And I'm like, do they realize we don't have a picture of Jesus? I mean, this is, this is interesting. I mean, the things that people fight about. One group was fighting over whether or not they should serve a weaker brand of coffee versus a stronger brand of coffee. And some people left the church because they didn't choose the right coffee. Now, if you're new here to First Baptist Church, I want to tell you, you've come to a place that has its share of problems. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not going to paint a picture that's not accurate. But here's the thing. Any church you go to in the world is going to have its share of problems. You can't find one without problems. The, the real problem is not that churches have problems. The real problem is when churches allow their problems to become so significant that they miss the solution to all their problems in Jesus Christ. What, what, what I believe God is doing in this place is He's working in our hearts so significantly that whatever problems rear their heads along the way, we will cling to Jesus as our way through. Back in 1961, there was a problem in First Baptist Church. And 93 people left the church. And they started a new church because they could not reconcile their problem. And today, just across town, Crestview Baptist Church is worshiping the Lord. Back in 1989, First Baptist Church also came to a place where they could not reconcile their differences. And as a result, just down the road, right off the square, is Main Street Baptist Church, worshiping the Lord today. I want you to know I am so incredibly thankful for the ministries of Crestview Baptist Church and Main Street Baptist Church. And we need to be a church who prays that God blesses those two churches. That God would fill every seat in their worship center, would bust them out at the seams. 
that they'd be overflowing with people they've reached for Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. We don't have enough seats in all the churches that are preaching the gospel in Williamson County to take care of this county. We need every church reaching people for Christ. We need to pray that God would bless those places immensely. I love the ministries of those two churches, and I'm grateful that God can use fractures in a redemptive way and bring something out of that that we can all be thankful for, right? I mean, we got to look at Crestview today and say, thank you, Lord. we got to look at Main Street today and say, thank you, Lord. But here's the thing. What I'm saying is, if God can bring that out of a fracture, what can God bring out of unity? I want to be a part of that story. That somebody says they were so unified, they were so intent on purpose of following Christ, they were so focused on the priority of making disciples that no disagreements among them got them sidetracked and they followed Christ and look at the hundreds of congregations that have begun all over the world because of their unity. I mean, wouldn't it be cool? Okay, you think about that. That's the looking back over 50 years. We see two congregations in our church, in our community that are blessing the Lord today out of our disunity. What if over the next 50 years, out of our unity, God starts 20 congregations in Williamson County? I mean, that's the kind of story I want to be a part of. Don't you? Well, guess what? It starts with you, and it starts with me. You ever hear this in your house? Hey, will somebody get the dishes out of the dishwasher? Will somebody clean the kitchen? Will somebody put the clothes from the washer into the dryer? Y'all ever hear anything like that in your house? Somebody. I hear that a lot. When I hear that, you may be like me. I think, well, my name's not somebody. (laughs) Do you ever do do that? I mean, Lindley can testify. I'm speaking the truth. When, When somebody becomes nobody, then everybody thinks that somebody who's really nobody will do what everybody should be doing. You get that? You might need to hear that again. When somebody becomes nobody, then everybody thinks that somebody who's really nobody will do Everybody should have been doing all along. If any single person in this room does not believe that the answer to the prayer for unprecedented wave of unity does not rest on you, we will not be unified like God wants us to be. So what does that mean for you? I want to tell you what I do in my own life, personally, that helps me pursue unity. It's real simple. Number one, I come to church. Like, I I love being here. And, And I don't love being here just because I get to preach. I love being here because I get to experience the presence of the Lord with you. And it changes my life. Like, I can't live without the regular experience of the corporate gathering of God's people. I can't live without that because I'm not designed to survive well without it. 
I'm a part of a body, a family. That God is designed to meet together regularly to experience his presence. I need this to remind me of God's grace. I need to daily read my Bible and spend time in prayer because I need to be reminded of God's grace. Do you know what my tendency is? This, is? this is an honest confession. Here's my tendency. If I don't regularly come and worship with you, if I don't pick up my Bible and spend time in prayer as close to daily as possible, my tendency is to forget the grace I was shown and to stop extending grace where grace is needed. And I become really selfish. And that's no good for our unity, right? So, so I got to spend time here with all of you. I got to spend time reading God's word and praying. And then I've got to be in some conversations with a smaller group of people where I can actually say, hey, this is what God's doing. This is where he's convicting me. This is the things that are being changed in me. I need help here. Would you pray for me here? I need to be gathering in a smaller group of believers who want to pursue the Lord too so that I'm encouraged to keep pursuing the Lord. Because whether you've realized this or not, and I bet you've realized this too along with me, this is not easy. Unity is hard. And we need to make sure that we are reminding ourselves of God's gracious deliverance all the time. Because if we don't keep on the forefront of our hearts the great gift of Jesus Christ, we will not be prone to extend grace where grace is needed. But if we'll remind ourselves and each other of the grace of Jesus Christ, then we'll be able to extend grace where grace is needed. And that's the thing that we all need to be doing. Extending grace where grace is needed. I suspect that in this church there are people that don't like each other. There are people that have been hurt by somebody. There are probably people at Main Street and Crestview and some other churches in our area that have been hurt by somebody here. Or somebody here has been hurt by one of them and the reason we're not at the same place anymore is because of hurt. And, and I just want to kindly urge you to ask the Lord, am I the somebody that you're asking to answer the prayer for an unprecedented wave of unity? And forgive and let go of your anger and disappointment and hurt. And be so struck by the grace of God that no problem will prevail over the great solution of our one true deliverer, Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of story? It starts with us.